The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6 and reading the first four verses. The first four verses in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now we are particularly concerned this morning with that fourth verse. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We've been looking at this uh, interesting and important statement which the apostle makes here for two or three Sunday mornings, and hitherto we've been looking at it chiefly from the standpoint of the children who are commanded to obey their parents. But uh, we have seen, and I've already reminded you, that the Apostle, with his customary balance and fairness, which is ever the characteristic of divine truth, puts also before us the other side. And this other side is what we have in this fourth verse, where he addresses words to the parents, and in particular to the father, as the one who is the more responsible for discipline and order. Now, here we come to a very important and vital subject. In many ways, there is no doubt at all, this is one of the most urgent matters confronting everybody in this country, and indeed in every country in the world, at this present time. The tragedy of the world this morning is entirely due to the breakdown of discipline in various ways and forms. And, of course, all that originates primarily in the home. If you haven't discipline in the home, you'll have it nowhere. And that has been the order beyond any doubt. Discipline first began to wane in the home, and then it followed in the schools, and then we see it happening in society, in industry, commerce, business, professionally, everywhere. So that here we are dealing with one of these quite basic and uh, fundamental matters concerning the whole of life and of conduct. It's a problem not only for Christian people, but it is a problem for the whole of society. But what peculiarly affects us is this, that we are set, as the scriptures remind us, as lights in the world. We are the salt of society. We are like a city set upon a hill. There is no hope for the world this morning apart from the light which comes to it from the Christian church. It is therefore doubly important that as Christian people we should be careful to observe and to understand the apostolic teaching. It is for us to give an example to the whole world as to how life is to be truly lived. And we have a unique opportunity, I feel, at such a time as this in showing the Christian biblical balanced view concerning this whole problem of discipline. Now, this problem, this urgent problem which we are looking at together, is not confined, of course, to the problem of children, 
the same principle is involved with regard to the whole modern attitude to crime and to war and to punishment in every shape and form. It's a part of that same larger and general problem. But here we are looking at it in particular as it affects the, the discipline of children and the discipline of the home. Now, I ended last Sunday morning by saying that uh, there are two fundamental statements which seem to me to govern any true thinking about this question of discipline. On the one hand, you have the familiar statement, spare the rod and spoil the child, or the other forms of that statement which we had in that 22nd chapter of the book of Proverbs this morning, and there are other similar statements in that book and in the Old Testament wisdom literature. There is one side, spare the rod, spoil the child. But here is the other side, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. There, I feel, are two fundamental positions which we must lay down and uh, discover our doctrine concerning discipline somewhere between those two poles, those two positions. Within the kind of ellipse between these two points, we shall find the biblical doctrine concerning this subject. Now, as we approach it, it seems to me the best uh, method, perhaps, is to Look at it in general, first of all. Take a general consideration. And the thing that strikes us at once, of course, is the great change that has taken place during this present century with regard to this whole problem of discipline, especially during the last 30 years or so. But it's been going on, in a sense, during the whole of this century. There has been a complete revolution an almost entire change in the attitude of people towards this matter. Now, you know that formerly you had what we uh, like to call derisively at the present time the Victorian outlook with regard to this matter of discipline. Let us admit uh, quite readily and quite frankly that there uh, is no question at all but that that was excessive. It was repressive. It was often brutal. Indeed, it can be said that very frequently it was even inhuman. The Victorian father, the Victorian grandfather, is a well-known and a well-recognized type. There is no doubt at all but that there was the element, indeed considerable elements, of the tyrant in such a conception of fatherhood and of family discipline. The children were ruled severely and sternly. The saying was, children are to be seen and not heard. And it was certainly put into operation and into practice. They were not allowed to express their opinions. They were frequently not even allowed to ask questions. They were told what to do and they had to do it. And if they didn't, they were punished with very real and great severity. Now, we needn't spend our time with this. Uh, it's been caricatured so much uh, during this present century. It's been attacked and ridiculed so much that everybody, surely, is uh, familiar with the thing uh, as a picture. Most of us probably present uh, are not old enough to remember it in actual practice, except those uh, who are beyond, uh, say, the age of 60 or so. But we're all, at any rate, familiar with the general notion, the picture 
and the idea. That's how it used to be. That was the position, say, a hundred years ago, and subsequently to that, and right up until the First World War. But since then, of course, there has been an entire change. And today we are confronted by a position which is almost the exact opposite of that. For the position today is that we are tending to do away with discipline altogether. It is, as I've said, a part of a general attitude towards war, towards crime, towards punishment as a whole, and especially corporal and capital punishment. Uh, a new climate of opinion has come in, which uh, in total rejects the notions which governed the Victorian outlook uh, concerning these matters. Indeed, we can describe it as a, a general opposition to the whole notion of justice and of righteousness and of wrath and of punishment. These terms are all abominated and they're hated. The modern man speaking generally dislikes them radically. He doesn't like to hear about justice. Doesn't like to hear about righteousness. Doesn't like to hear about wrath and punishment. Now, you needn't take my word for this. You've only got to read your papers, your newspapers. You've only got to see the tendency in acts of parliament, the changes that have been coming in increasingly. You don't hear these terms used. Right. Truth. Justice. Righteousness. Now the great words of today are peace, happiness, enjoyment, ease. And these are the great words representing great principles. They're scarcely ever used amongst us at all. The modern man has revolted against all this. I've no doubt at all that it is very largely a reaction against the Victorianism that preceded it. However, that doesn't matter. That what we are concerned about is the actual state of affairs at the present time. But what makes it all so serious is this. That all this is generally put today in terms of Christianity. And uh, it's put especially in terms of the New Testament teaching. And especially, of course, as contrasted with the Old Testament teaching. Now, this, this is, I say, what is being done uh, so constantly and so generally. They say, of course, the trouble with those Victorians was as it was the trouble with the Puritans. They lived in the Old Testament. They worshipped the God of the Old Testament. But they say, of course, we don't do that. That was only a tribal God. That's not God. That's not the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not the Christian God. So they say that uh, all these modern ideas with regard to discipline are based entirely upon the New Testament and that it is this true New Testament conception of God that they have and therefore they are not interested in justice and righteousness and wrath and punishment, that it's love and understanding and everything that goes along that particular line. Now this is the point, I say, at which it all becomes so serious. And it's interesting to notice that men who don't even claim to be Christians are saying this kind of thing. And you will, you'll even read statements in books and articles and journals which don't hesitate to assert that the Christian position today is generally being put not by the church, but by some of these popular modern infidel writers 
who are openly and frankly not Christian at all. We are told that the Christian case is going by default, the church is not putting it forward, and that Christianity is rarely being presented today by these men who are outside the church and who are not Christian. It is said that they are giving the true exposition of the New Testament teaching as over against the Old Testament teaching. Well, here it is. You've got this curious alliance of uh, some people calling themselves Christians and others openly asserting that they're not Christians, but both together agreeing that uh, Christianity and the New Testament takes this modern view with regard to discipline and therefore has departed from that old Victorian view and from that Old Testament view. Well, summing it up, we can put it like this. The basic idea is that human nature is essentially good. That's the fundamental philosophy. Human nature is essentially good. And therefore what is needed is just to draw out and to encourage and to develop personality. So there must be no repelling, there must be no punishing. There must be no administration of correction, because that tends to be repressive. And what is really needed is encouragement to draw out and to develop the personality. Now, you see, that being the controlling principle, it works out, of course, almost all along the line in every department of life. Take, for instance, teaching methods. This is surely one of the most serious matters confronting this country today. Teaching methods uh, during the last 20 years or so have been determined almost entirely by this new outlook, by this new psychology, which regards human nature as essentially good. And how has it affected teaching? Well, like this, that the notion is that you must not compel the child. You must not uh, force the child. One of the first to describe this teaching was a lady, Miss Montessori, and she brought her method of teaching forward, which roughly came to this, that you should allow children to decide themselves and choose themselves what they want to learn. Before that, of course, there had been a compulsory method of teaching the three R's, and you had to do it whether you wanted it or not, and children were taught timetable, tables, and uh, multiplication tables, divisions. It was done mechanically, there was no attempt to make it interesting to the children. They were just told they'd got to learn their alphabet, they'd got to learn their tables, they'd got to learn their grammar. It was drummed into them. They had to repeat it mechanically until they knew it by memory, could repeat it by rote. Now, all that has been dismissed. All that, we are told, is quite wrong. Because it uh, didn't develop the child's personality. Teaching must uh, be made uh, interesting. And everything must be explained to the child. Child mustn't learn a thing mechanically. It must understand it. And so the explanations are given. The old method has been discarded in terms, you see, of this view of human nature, this whole attitude towards life, which claims to be Christian. And so, in the mere matter of educational method, there has been this uh, profound revolution. Because by now we're beginning to discover some of the results of this. And you will find industrialists and others complaining that uh, people applying for posts can no longer spell and they can't do simple arithmetic. And so, however, we needn't be concerned about that. I'm concerned about the principles. Then when you come to the question of punishment, punishment has very largely become a thing of the past because the whole notion is disliked. 
No, we are told you mustn't punish, you must appeal. You, you appeal to children, you show them how wrong the thing is, and give them a good example, and you reward them positively. Now, of course, there's, we must grant a great deal of truth in all this. But the danger is, you see, that you always go from one extreme to the other, and that the whole notion of punishment has gone out altogether. Indeed, there are some who have pressed this notion so far as to say this, that you should never punish a child, but that the thing to do is if a child does anything wrong, you should take punishment upon yourself, and thereby you will shame the child. You don't punish the child, but uh, as they understand the teaching of the New Testament, the, the thing to do is to take the punishment upon yourself. And then the child, seeing that, will give up this wrong and evil practice. I remember a man very well, some 30 years ago, who literally put this into practice with his own family. He had a child who, like every other child, was given occasionally to disobedience and to doing wrong things. But having got hold of this new theory, he was no longer going to punish the child in any shape or form. But he was going to take the punishment on himself. And the, pun and the method he adopted was this that the child, whenever it did wrong, was to be dealt with in this way. That instead of punishing the child, he would not eat his supper that night. And that was his method of dealing with it. Well, you've already anticipated the result. He soon, in the interest of his own health, had to revert somewhat to the old method. But that is uh, just a, a typical illustration of this modern attitude. Human nature, you see, is essentially good. And you've only got to appeal to that which is best and highest in it. You never need to punish. You never need to put down. You never need to exercise discipline. But if you thus suffer before it, ah, oh, it's bound to listen. People believed, you see, that if you did that with Hitler, there'd be no war. You could change Hitler. If you just went and spoke nicely and kindly to him and showed him how you were ready to suffer. You remember there was a man very popular in London here before the war, who really proposed that he and a few others should go and stand between the armies of Japan and China. They didn't actually do it, but they were quite convinced if they only went and stood there between the rival armies and sacrificed themselves, the war would come to an end. The notion is that human nature is essentially good. You've only got to appeal to it. You never need punishment. And if you do punish at all, it must never be corporal. It must never be punitive. If there is to be any sort of punishment, we are told that it must be reformatory. Now, this is an interesting point. The new notion is that the business of punishment is to reform. Not to punish, not to exercise retribution, but to reform. So that if you do have any kind of punishment at all, it is all to be geared in such a manner that it is to be reformatory. And the result is, that we are told that we must always be positive and we must always be aiming at building up a new type of personality and of character. And you see, it works out like this. Take the question of prisons. Now, the modern notion is that the business of prisons is not to punish offenders. It is to reform them. So, we are being told increasingly that what is needed in prisons now is not to invent various forms of punishment. You've abolished the cat and every form of corporal punishment, and your prisons must now be manned and filled by psychiatrists. A prison is a place in which a man receives psychological, psychiatric treatment. You see, you mustn't punish him for what he's done. No, you must now proceed to 
essentially that man is a good man. So what you must do is to build up that goodness, to draw that out. Just show him the evil of his other notions and ideas and what he's been doing, and he'll come to see that, and he'll see how wrong they were, and he'll stop doing that, and then you build up the other side. And so by means of your psychiatric treatment, you will be reforming this man and building up a new type of character and of personality. Now, this is the controlling notion, as you are aware, with regard to the treatment of crime and the punishment of crime. Capital punishment is abolished. Any form of corporal punishment must be abolished. Indeed, any kind of severity must be abolished. The whole notion is this treatment by psychiatry, psychological approach, building up this positive something that is there in the whole of human nature. And, of course, the same thing is largely coming in in the handling and dealing with children. The whole tendency today is if a child uh, doesn't behave himself as he should in school, the tendency now is to send him to a child psychologist. Everybody must be treated psychologically. You see, essentially they're all good. And therefore you must never punish. That must be about What you want is to draw out this good. So when the teacher fails to maintain discipline, the child is sent off to the psychiatrist, the child psychologist, for investigation and for the application of the appropriate treatment. Well, now I've taken all this time to describe all this, because it seems to me to be very essential that we should have some understanding of it. The point I'm making is that all this is being done in the name of Christianity. All this is said to be New Testament as against the Old Testament. This, we are told, is the approach of Christ towards these matters. And I feel that in many senses, the whole Christian position is involved just here. The whole future of the church, it seems to me, is involved just here. Here is a view, you see, that infidels are advocating and supporting, as well they might. But it's being done in the name of Christianity and of the New Testament. Very well, let's look at it. What is the biblical, the Christian teaching with regard to this matter? And uh, I don't hesitate to assert, and I want to try to prove to you, that the biblical and Christian attitude towards these two extremes is that they're both wrong. That the Victorianism was wrong, and that the modern position is equally wrong, even more so. That they're both wrong. But we are concerned, of course, especially with the present and the prevailing argument. I'm going to come back later, God willing, to the Victorian notion, which, of course, can be dealt with in terms of this. You fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, because that is exactly what they did. And this modern attitude is so much a reaction to that. But let us take the modern position first. Why do I assert that from the biblical and Christian standpoint, this modern notion with regard to the problem of discipline is so entirely and completely wrong. Well, the first is this. The opposite of a wrong type of discipline is surely not to have no discipline at all. But that is what is happening today. The Victorians, we were told, they were wrong. That was wrong. That was wrong discipline. And the opposite, we are told, to wrong discipline is literally no discipline at all. No punishment, no discipline, allow the child to do as it likes and almost everybody else to do as he or she likes. Now, there is a fundamental fallacy, of course. The opposite of wrong discipline is right discipline. 
is true discipline. That's what you see you've got here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Discipline them, yes, but don't, don't let it be a wrong discipline. Let it be the right sort of discipline. Don't provoke them to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, that's true discipline. But the tragedy is today with this superficial thinking, that they seem to think that the opposite of wrong discipline is no discipline at all, which is a complete fallacy from the standpoint of mere thought and philosophy. Well, let me put it to you like this secondly. Any position which says law only, or which says grace only, is of necessity wrong. Because in the Bible you have law and grace. It isn't law or grace. It is law and grace. You see, there was grace in the Old Testament law. All the burnt offerings and sacrifices are indicative of that. It was God who provided them. Let nobody ever say that there was no grace in the law of God as given to Moses and the children of Israel. It's full of grace. But it is law with grace in it. And on the other hand, we must never say that grace means lawlessness. That's antinomianism. That's the thing that is so condemned in the New Testament. There were many of these early Christians who said, oh, we're no longer under law. We're under grace. Now, that means it doesn't matter what I do. Because I'm no longer under law and I'm under grace, let the sin of grace may abound. Do what you like. Doesn't matter. God is love. You're forgiven. You're in Christ. You're born again. Get drunk. Do anything you like. Stop working. All these things are dealt with in the epistles to the Corinthians and, as you know, to the Thessalonians and even in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, that is the tragic fallacy. That you, when you have grace, there is no element of law at all. But it's a kind of license, which is a contradiction of the biblical teaching concerning both law and grace. There is grace in law. There is law in grace. We are not without law, says Paul, as Christians, but we are under law to Christ. That's how he puts it. Of course. There is discipline. In fact, the Christian ought to be much more disciplined than the man who was under the law because he sees it more clearly. He's got a greater power. He's got a truer understanding. He lives a better, more disciplined life, therefore. There isn't less discipline in the new than the old. There is more and at a deeper level. And in any case, as the Apostle Paul teaches in writing to the Galatians, you mustn't dismiss the law. Why? Well, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Don't set these things up as opposites. No, no, the law was given by God in order that men might be shut up and shut in, as it were, to Christ who was to come, who was to give them this great salvation. Therefore, I say that this modern idea completely misunderstands both law and grace. It's a complete muddle. It is an utter confusion. Indeed, it is not biblical at all. It is nothing but human philosophy human psychology. It uses Christian terms, but it rarely evacuates the terms of their real meaning. Thirdly, this teaching, of course, and this is one of the most serious things concerning it, is a complete misunderstanding of the biblical doctrine of God. Thirdly, this teaching, of course, and this is one of the most serious things concerning it, is a complete misunderstanding of the biblical doctrine of God. This is the desperately serious thing. 
Modern man, you see, doesn't take his picture of God from the Bible. He takes it from his own brain, his own heart. He doesn't believe in revelation. That's why he began his so-called higher criticism of the Bible about the 1840s of the, of the last century. Man has been creating God in his own image. And the God he has created, of course, is a God who must be the exact antithesis of the Victorian father. Now, that's not an original statement of mine. That, that's a quotation from a very eminent writer who writes in this present century. You see, they say that God of the Old Testament, that's your Victorian father. And that's all wrong. So the Old Testament is entirely shed. Oh, they say the God we believe in is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but the Lord Jesus Christ believed in the God of the Old Testament. He said, think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am come not to destroy but to fulfill. He believed the whole of the Old Testament. He says so repeatedly. He believed in that God who gave a revelation of himself to Moses on the mountain in the Ten Commandments. Our Lord believed, he accepted all that. So they can't claim that it's his teaching. It isn't his teaching, in fact. It is their own teaching. The God who has revealed himself to us through this book is a God who is holy. It's the New Testament that tells us that we must approach God with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Indeed, this is a book, this New Testament there, I'm quoting from the epistle to the Hebrews, tells us that in the Old Testament we are only given a very dim a notion of the holiness and the majesty and the glory and the greatness of God. It was all external there. It was only an external representation. God is infinitely holy. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is righteous. God is just always. God is love, I know, but God is also all these other things, and there is no contradiction in them. They're all one, and they're all present at the same time, and in eternal power and fullness in the person of God. That's the revelation of the scriptures. And the notion that God is someone who can wink at sin and pretend he hasn't seen it and cover it over and forgive everybody and never feel any wrath and never punish. It is, I say, not only to deny the Old Testament, it's to deny the New Testament also. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who talked about the place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It is he who talks about the division of the sheep and the goats. It is he who says, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart into the place prepared and reserved for you and the devil. The thing is monstrous, my dear friends, that this should be masquerading in the, names, in the name of the New Testament and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a denial, I say, of the biblical doctrine of God, both Old Testament and New. God is a holy God, a just God, a righteous God, who has made it perfectly plain that he will punish sin and transgression, and who historically has done so. He punished his own children of Israel for their transgression. He allowed them to go into captivity. He even raised up the Chaldeans as his instrument of chastisement. The Apostle Paul teaches explicitly in the first 
chapter, the second half of the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans, that God punishes sin and does so sometimes by abandoning the world to its own evil and iniquity. And what horrifies and alarms me is this, that I feel he's doing it at this present hour, but that men with this modern psychology can't see it because they don't understand the biblical truth about God. Why are we in such trouble this morning? Why are we all, as it were, trembling as to what's going to happen in Paris? Why are we all alarmed about these aeroplane flights and the possibility of an atomic war? What's the matter? I suggest to you that the matter is this, that the world doesn't see that these things are happening because God is punishing us by abandoning us to ourselves because we are not submitting to him and to his holy and his righteous laws. It is because of this departure from the biblical teaching concerning God's person and deriving from that the whole notion of discipline and of government and of order. But let me hurry on. It is in the fourth place a complete failure to realize what sin has done to men. That's the trouble. This notion that man is fundamentally and essentially good and that you've only got to draw out the good and everything will be all right. You've only got to make an appeal. Never punish but just to take the suffering upon yourself. And they'll be so moved by it, they'll be so broken down by the moral appeal that you're putting to them, they'll stop doing wrong at once, and they'll all begin to behave perfectly. The simple answer to that is this, that man's nature is evil, that as a result of the fall, he is altogether evil, he's a rebel, he's lawless, he's governed by wrong forces, and therefore he is impervious to all appeals that may come to him. Now, how anybody can dispute that is what almost passes my comprehension. The modern world is proving it. This other method has been tried now for a number of years. What's happening? Well, don't you see the mounting problem? Juvenile delinquency, disorder, in the home, theft, murders, rob, the whole of modern society. All this has been given a very good trial for nearly 30 years. And the problem is mounting up from week to week and almost from day to day. Of course. Man is not fundamentally good. All the imaginations of the thoughts of his heart are evil, as we are told they were in the days before the flood. Man is not a good creature who only needs a little encouragement. Man's nature is twisted and perverted and vile. He's a rebel. He hates the light. He loves the darkness. He's a creature of lust and passion. And it is the failure to recognize that that is responsible for this modern notion. But then it's, in the fifth place, a complete misunderstanding also of the doctrine of the atonement and of redemption and the cardinal doctrine of regeneration. You see, these people don't understand the doctrine of the atonement. I still have to meet a pacifist who understands the doctrine of the atonement. I still have to meet one of these people who holds the modern view on discipline who understands the doctrine of the atonement. What is the doctrine of the atonement? It is this that this just and holy and righteous God was on the cross of Calvary punishing sin in the person of his own Son, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. God was laying on him the iniquity of us all. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. By his stripes we are healed. God, it hath pleased God to bruise him. Why? Well, you see, the justice and the righteousness of God demands this. 
The wrath of God upon sin insists upon this. And this is where you see truly the love of God, that it is so great that the wrath is poured out even on his own son in all his innocence, that you and I might be rescued and delivered. But they don't understand that. They don't believe that. Oh, they see nothing but something sentimental in the cross. They see these cruel people putting to death the Son of God. And he smiles upon them and says, I still forgive you though you've done it. But that's what they say. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible is full of this notion of offering and of sacrifice and of the shedding of blood and that without, remi- without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. That's the teaching of the Old Testament and the New. And this is a complete denial of it. There is punishment and you see it supremely on the cross on Calvary's hill. And likewise I say with regeneration. If man is essentially good you don't need to be born again. You don't need regeneration. But the central doctrine here is regeneration. That the only hope is that we be made partakers of the divine nature. You see, it's a denial of all the fundamental biblical doctrines, and yet it comes and masquerades in the name of Christianity. No, no, the biblical teaching is this. That until a man comes under grace, he's got to be kept under law. That sin and evil must be kept within bounds, and God has done that. Who's appointed magistrates? God. Read Romans 13. The magistrate, we are told, beareth not the sword in vain. Who has appointed kings and magistrates and governors? God. Who appointed states? God. Why? Well, to keep sin and evil within bounds. If he hadn't done so, the world would have petrified to nothing centuries and centuries ago. God has instituted law because of men's sinful nature. And he has instituted it in order that men may be restrained and kept from evil until he comes under grace. It is God who gave the law, and he gave it for that reason. And obviously a law to be effective is something that must have sanctions. There is no value in your having a law, and then a man is arrested in terms of the law, and you immediately tell him, well, that's all right, we have arrested you, but there's no punishment. Would that be effective? Surely there is a modern contemporary illustration that ought to satisfy our minds with regard to the whole of this matter. Look at the slaughter that's taking place on the roads. And what are we doing about it? We're making appeals. Making appeals. Issuing statements. Bringing in new regulations. Getting the wireless and the television to keep on repeating it before Easter and Whitson great appeals. Do they have any effect? Of course they don't. They never will. Why? Well, because man is a rebel, because he is lawless. There's only one way to deal with that problem, and that is to punish these offenders. That's the only language they understand. Man in sin never has understood any other language. You go to him with a spirit of sweet reasonableness, and he'll take advantage of you. We tried it with Hitler. We called it appeasement. We could see it was wrong there. Why can't we see it's wrong with the individual? No, no, it's no use going to make your appeals in terms of sweet reasonableness to men whom you know are evil and governed by lust and passion. The biblical teaching is that such people are to be punished and are to feel their punishment. If they won't listen to the appeal, well, then you've got to bring in the sanction of the law. And God, when he gave the law, accompanied it by the sanctions which were to take place if the law was broken and the sanctions were carried out. God doesn't give a law and then say it doesn't matter. No, no. God carries out his law. And as you look at the history of this country without going any further, 
You will always find that the most disciplined and the most glorious periods in the history of this country have been the periods that have followed a religious reformation. Look at the Elizabethan period following the Protestant Reformation when men brought the Bible back, Old Testament and New, and put it into practice and enforced their laws. The Elizabethan period, the Cromwellian period, and the period following the evangelical awakening of the 18th century. That is the biblical teaching. That because man is a fallen creature, because he's a sinner and a rebel, because he's a creature of lust and passion and governed by them, he must be forcibly restrained. He must be kept in order. It applies to children. It applies to adults who are guilty of misdemeanor and crime and a departure from the law of the land and from the law of God. You try any other method and you'll have chaos. We are having it at this present time. The biblical teaching founded upon the character and the being of God and man in sin is law and law enforced that you may bring men to see and to know God that you may bring them unto grace, that you may bring them to this higher law where they delight in pleasing God and honoring and keeping his holy commandments. Very well. We start therefore, and I leave it at this this morning, that the biblical teaching everywhere is that there must be discipline, there must be punishment. But then that leaves us with this question. How exactly is that punishment to be meted out? And it is there that this text is so important. Yes, you must exercise discipline, but you mustn't provoke your children to wrath. There is a wrong way of exercising discipline as well as a right way. And what we should be concerned about is to discover the right, the true, the biblical method of exercising the discipline which is commanded us by the holy law of God. Well, I do trust that we have been able to see something of how this modern notion, which claims the name of Christ, is a denial of all the basic and fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. It is not a bit surprising that the infidels are advocating it very loudly with respect to capital punishment, with respect to war, with respect to education, with respect to prison reform, with respect to everything. It's not surprising that they're advocating it because we do not expect of them Christian and biblical understanding. Let us join together in singing hymn number 229. 229. Lamp of our feet whereby we trace our path when wont to stray. 229.